1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone,
2: and thank you for tuning in to the next episode of our special series to champion and celebrate International Women's Day. This episode is a real treat. I had the opportunity to interview three very different CEOs who all happen to be women. First up, you'll hear me talk to Kate Stevens, who is the CEO of a charity called Smartworks, who uh, really exists to empower women to get back into work and to give people confidence. And she talks about confidence both in terms of the work that the charity do, but also confidence to be a CEO and the reality of that role and how that works for her and her journey. I think you'll really enjoy listening to me talking to Kate because she is full of common sense wisdom, is how I would describe her, really somebody that you can relate to, that has experienced all the kind of ins and outs of balancing work and life and kids, and is just an incredibly positive force for good. You'll then hear me talk to Ethne O'Leary, who is the president of an investment bank called Stifle. So a brand that you might be less familiar with, very much a kind of male-orientated world historically. So really interesting to hear from Ethna how she is kind of making that role work of kind of being a CEO in what is quite a traditionally male-orientated environment work for her. And she's particularly insightful on listening. So she talks about how nobody has a monopoly on wisdom and the importance of listening when you're in that role, which I found really fascinating. And then finally, you'll hear me talk to Dame Scylla Snowball. Not only does Scylla have one of the most memorable and brilliant names that I've ever come across, she was the CEO of the UK's largest advertising agency, AMV BBDO, until relatively recently. And she's now moved on to a portfolio career where she does lots of interesting kind of non-exec and directorship roles. And you will hear her share her kind of wisdom gained over lots of years of experience around careers how to make the right choices for you uh, how to have the right support network and just to figure out kind of what makes you happy and content so Liv is someone I've known for a really long time so it was really nice to be able to chat to her and bring all of her kind of insights to our listeners so I really hope you enjoy each of the conversations Kate thank you so much for joining us today it's a pleasure So Kate, for people who don't know about SmartWorks, just tell us a bit about the purpose of the charity and kind of what you do, what you exist to make happen, I guess.
3: Sure. So SmartWorks exists to help women succeed at their job interview and get back into work. And we do this by a very practical means of giving them the clothes and the confidence they need to really ace it at their job interview. So each woman who comes to see us is dressed in a complete outfit of clothes that are styled for her and that are hers to keep. She takes them away with her after her interview and then she has an hour one-to-one in our coaching room with one of our experienced coaches and that sounds very simple but actually during that two-hour appointment each woman who comes to us just has a moment to reconnect with who she is and what she's capable of especially before a job interview which is hard for everybody and they leave looking up at the sky rather than down at their feet and 64% at the moment go on to get the job so we're really proud to run this service which we know has a really tangible impact on a woman.
2: So what does a week in the life of being a CEO at SmartWorks look and feel like? What do you typically spend your kind of days doing?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's running a charity, in my view, is just like running any business or organisation, except our end of game is change. You know, we want to achieve a positive change for the people that we're supporting. Otherwise, there's no point doing it. We're not here to make ourselves feel better. We're here to help people change their lives. So... That's our kind of guiding principle and actually we've now got seven centres around the UK so a lot of my time is spent... I'm in London, I'm based in our biggest centre so there's always something going on there's always donations being dropped off from 10, <laughs> 10 o'clock every day they've got clients arriving we've got all our volunteer dresses and interview coaches arriving the staff there and there's a real feeling of vibrancy and energy so I love coming to work in the morning and, and having that sense of um we had visitors last week actually and they said it's like being in a campaign room and it, it has that yeah, feeling of energy, energy. Yeah. exactly and I want every woman who comes there to feel that and that's a big part of what we do and my role is, you know, partly overseeing that. I'm often out and about at our different centres around the UK. So I try and go and see what's going on on the ground as much as I can. And then there's a big role looking after the money that we need to bring in. So working with our partners who may be funding us to do different campaigns. So those kind of external facing meetings. And then we've got a very active and engaged board who keep me very busy as well, which <laughs> is fantastic. Our founder is our chair still, so she's often popping in and still dressing. So there's always a lot going on.
2: And I don't think any of us grow up thinking, when I grow up, I'd like to be (laughs) a CEO, please. You might grow up and think, oh, I'd like to work in a charity, or particularly as you probably get a bit older, you might think, I want to do something that's purpose-led or kind of charity-led. How has that kind of worked for you in terms of the decisions you've made around your career? Mm. Did, did, you, did you think, oh, actually, I would quite like to have that level of ownership and you're quite motivated and ambitious by that? Has it all been a bit more accidental than that?
3: Yeah, not quite that calculating. Um, <laughs> I'd like to back apply it. I do feel there's a moment where lots of people have felt this, but when you're in a role where you feel... Like you are thriving and things are going well. There's a way to look back and think. I feel like everything's been building yes. up to this moment and all the different <laughs> skill sets. So I've <laughs> and I thought all this exactly. through. <laughs> how did I know that I needed time doing that and then time <laughs> doing this to allow me to be able to do this now? So, but that is how I feel. You know, it's an amazing thing to be. But it was never that considered. Uh, you know, I started out in political consultancy in the uh, in the 90s at a time when you know. Uh, The country was booming, frankly, and it was a really exciting time to be involved and engaged and working at a very senior level with politicians and chief executives and really at the heart of business and policymaking. So something completely different. And then as I grew up, that company changed and became more of a PR marketing agency. And I had my children and I had an amazing chief executive who kept a role for me to go back to, which was so important as we kind of grew as an organisation. There's always something there for me to do. But it was about that time when I felt, you know what, I feel like there's something more that I want to do with these skills that I think I have now. And I became a trustee of a charity that was campaigning for affordable childcare. So before I had children, I didn't really get that. And then suddenly I had children. I really so get I, that. And it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. I'm basically, basically working into the for the mortgage, Exactly. Yep. And that's a really hard decision that women then have to make. And I think if you're going to go to work, A, you have to have a career that you really believe in, and B, you have to know your children are happy and well looked after. And I think if you can't have that, what chances there? So it was a really important cause for me and I got more and more involved with that charity. And it just opened my eyes to the sector, frankly. It was far more dynamic and entrepreneurial than I ever realised. And Actually, in the end, I became quite obsessed with it all and I found it was more entrepreneurial dynamic than my existing job. And uh, uh, we did a merger with another charity and then achieved quite a few of the objectives we wanted to achieve in terms of kind of legislating for some of these things. And then the opportunity came up at Smartworks and it just felt like the moment when actually I wanted to make my side of my desk job my day job and the opportunity to run something like this was just too good to be true, really. It was that great mix of tactical... Delivering a service, but also the strategic possibility. It was just in one centre when I joined, but the board were up for it. They wanted to grow. Yeah. And they could see this amazing service. And it just needed a kind of push. And it's like, yeah. I think I know how to do that, actually. <laughs> all that branding, <laughs> marketing, comms bit. Like, all um, of my
2: stuff's going to be useful. Yes. Yes, exactly. I'm finally i finally going to pay off. <laughs> <laughs> and actually,
3: in all seriousness, I would strongly recommend to anybody thinking about a trusteeship for a charity, because that was the moment. You know, I grew up in a consultancy where everyone's essentially doing the same job. You know, they're all giving you advice and it's like, who's got the best advice? So that's quite a hard thing to do. And actually, when you're around a table on a board, you are the comms and marketing expert and yeah. the book kind of stops with you and you say something and everyone goes, oh, right. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> Wait a minute, like, let me just check I really think that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or you know, no one's going to contradict me or give their advice. Yeah. Or, you know, and it's like, oh, I see. I'm the person who knows about these things. And, and that's a very empowering thing to do. So as much as I got I was able to give to the charity, I also took out so much. At a time when I was kind of in and out on maternity leave as well. It was great yeah. to have that constant of um feeling that I had something to give as well.
2: One of the common themes from our listeners, particularly thinking about, you know, progressing into kind of more senior leadership roles, potentially people who, you know, would be interested in being a CEO at some point in the future, is some of the challenges around confidence, mm. um, which are unfortunately still, I think, prevalent, particularly in women. So whenever we were in workshops on lots of different topics, the one where we get 90 to 95% women yeah. uh, turning up is when we run confidence workshops. yeah, And I do think it continues to kind of be a challenge. How have you found that you've kind of overcome any of those, we call them confidence gremlins. We always say, oh, yeah. what are those confidence gremlins that kind of get yeah, in your yeah, way? Because yeah, yeah. yeah, we all have definitely. them, and that's what we're always trying to say to everyone. Like, everyone has confidence gremlins. Mm. I just think some people have found tactics and coping mechanisms and ways of making sure that those, when they do rear their kind of ugly heads, they don't stop you from still doing the CEO role, doing the thing that you're really kind of passionate
3: about? Yeah, I've thought about this quite a lot, actually, because I think one of the things that most helps me is, and this sounds a bit of a cliche, but genuinely loving what I do. And there's a great amount of confidence that comes from that, from understanding what I'm trying to achieve, what we're trying to achieve as a charity and why we want to do that. And I think if you can be really grounded in understanding what it is you're doing and why... That confidence, that kind of inner conviction and confidence can carry you a long way, so that's a
2: more general yeah no but of... that's really interesting. that point about the what's the relationship between conviction and confidence yes, actually exactly. I think it is really insightful, and the point of starting with the why, I yeah. always say to anyone clear about with any choice or decision why is that the right thing for you at that moment in time it might yeah. not be the right thing forever but if you know your why it helps you yeah. think as well through the tough times exactly because um, i am sure as a ceo you have days where things do go wrong yeah potentially absolutely. Um, or there's you know there's something crazy happening or there's something <laughs> <in> left field <laughs> and i think that's often one of the consistencies around anyone who does those kind of uh, ceo roles is like no two days are the same but you also there is quite a lot of reactive troubleshooting kind of firefighting but again if you've got that conviction I guess it helps you to be resilient to kind of bounce back exactly exactly and I think you set the tone
3: as well so I mean that's more of a CEO point but you definitely do set the tone for the staff for the volunteers if you go in an estate then everybody can immediately pick up on that and um, that's one of the things I've definitely learned: is to try and keep a lid a bit of um, how I might exactly be feeling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: quite so about everything. Well, I think the sure shadow that you decrease. cast yes. can never be um exactly.
3: underestimated. Exactly, exactly. That particularly relates to me because I feel like in the past, when I haven't felt as confident in a role, it's because I haven't really quite got it or understood it. And actually, at the end of the day, I've not felt comfortable talking about something that I don't absolutely believe in but then that comes down to my own personal drivers as well I think. Yeah. So I think it's a big complicated subject confidence um
2: and how important have either mentors or sponsors or just mm. your support network been yeah. to you generally in terms of your confidence but perhaps particularly as a CEO where it is often a bit of a cliche people say oh, you know it's lonely when you get to the top. Yeah. Um and actually in my experience I would say That sort of depends it depends Mm. whether it's lonely or not I've actually had experiences being in very senior roles where actually I've felt like I've actually had brilliant support around me and I've had the opposite as well Mm. and really kind of felt the difference and actually the need to make sure I've been thoughtful about my support network has probably got more important when I was in more kind of senior corporate roles certainly yeah how thoughtful and considerate have you been Is, is it kind of been a bit of a Oh, I've actually gone out and looked for certain people to spend time with, or actually just through the nature of what you do, do you find that you have that support network?
3: People are nice to you when you're running a charity in general, I'd yeah, say. <laughs> advantage. Quite forthcoming uh, with you know really top quality advice, but actually channeling it can be a challenge as well. I mean, there are two things I'd say. When is when I was applying for this job, actually, CEO. One of my um, my former boss, t- I was talking to them about it, and I I did that classic female thing of just saying. I've not done this and I've not done that and I want the summer off Mm. and I'm planning this and he just said shut up (laughs) actually just stop talking just go in there and say I can do this job but I'm starting in September for this reason and then just stop talking and for me that was the most valuable thing because I was over explaining and over agonising about something that wasn't necessary so I've always, whether it's luck or whatever you might call it, had good colleagues who can help guide at those moments. And then, you know, SmartWorks is very much a collaborative effort. And I have been blessed by the most amazing chair, Juliet Hees Hallett, whose vision it was to create SmartWorks. And we work really closely together. And that relationship is super important. We've got an amazing board and staff team as well. But I think, particularly in a charity, it's quite an unusual structure. You know, as CEO, I am not a director of. The, we're a company listed as well as a charity, yes. but I'm not a director. The trustees are the directors of the organization. Of course, yeah. So there's this kind of subtle difference, and it's just super important to have a healthy chair CEO relationship.
2: When you're thinking about the future of Smartworks, how do you start to think about the choices that you make? Because I always think that's one of the real challenges mm-hmm. when I've done stuff that's either charitable or kind of social based. Every time you spend money, there's always an opportunity cost. So for you, you must have things like, do you open a new centre? Do you invest in, like any other business, everyone has investments and decisions to make, but somehow choices feel more critical, I think, when you're thinking about a kind of charity. So how do you go through that sort of process of kind of decision making? It comes back to the same point of being grounded in
3: a very clear strategy and vision for what we want to do. So we want as many women as possible to experience the smart work service who need our help but when they come to us to make sure that they have the same quality of experience. So okay. we've got to maintain our quality. We we can only go at a certain rate, I think, without falling over. We have to be sustainable. There's a kind of certain moral dilemma about where do we go next? How do we take the service? What's the right thing to do? What's the right rate to go? But we have to be true to our existing clients and our existing base and make sure that we can support those. So I think when there's a a clear thought about what happens next, it's easier to make those big decisions. And we are very lucky. Smart is relatively cheap to run. You know, it's done by amazing volunteers who don't charge for their time, thankfully. All the clothes are donated. So... And whilst that takes quite a lot of structure around it to make sure that it happens in the right way, the, um, the basics, it's essentially a great model. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and at so, the heart of it. That's, you know, that don't want to lose that. So a lot of the time it's actually saying no to things. Okay. You know, we don't want to do more than dressing and coaching, there's a million things we could do yeah. as for any organisation okay, yeah. or, you know, there's a, million, a lot of possibilities. So it's more about just saying, no, we're not doing that. we're going to focus on this because we know this works, it's amazing and let's take it to as many women as we can. How yeah. do people find the service mainly? We rely on somebody sitting in the Princess Trust or the Job Centre saying, oh, you've got an interview coming up, go and see Smartworks, they can, get you the li- they can get you over the line. But that can be, because we're not in charge of that message, that can quickly become would you like some second hand clothes for your job interview which you know people are proud and will say no actually I don't need that kind of help but that's not what we are you know it's about the clothes but it's also about what clothes say about who you are and how you feel and what you feel you're capable of so breaking down that message has been one of our biggest challenges actually to reach that woman on the sofa directly how do we do that as a tiny charity and the one thing that's really helped over the last year and I'm sure has underlied some of our growth is that um the Duchess of Sussex joined as our patron. I'm really I'm sure that's a, not yes. not unhelpful.
2: Yeah, exactly. As a patrons go. Exactly, going.
3: <laughs> perhaps of the most inspiring and well known women in the world come and endorse you. But your also a really guarantee. natural fit.
2: I have to oh. say, when I saw that, because I was aware of SmartWorks beforehand, I didn't see that and think, oh, that's um you know, like the whole greenwashing yeah. or a person just putting a name, name to a face, all that kind I actually thought oh, that makes complete sense to me as to why she would be brilliant. She's very outspoken about women and equality. Obviously, she looks brilliant and also seems to genuinely care. I mean, obviously, I'm talking like I know her. You know, <laughs> she's my best friend. But it didn't feel, it felt very natural and and like a, a very good fit.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, it's been a very inspiring experience for all of us, really. And it's exactly as you said, she's came very quietly to see us and dress and coach our clients. And uh, before anything was announced publicly and really got involved and is just brilliant and empathetic with a woman who, you know, wouldn't necessarily expect that kind of help and didn't really know who she was either. So yeah. it was a really where's, where's special it, it, moment. Does it does exactly, it? exactly. When you've got a big interview coming up, what matters is getting the job.
2: And so if people are listening and thinking, oh, I would like to help and get involved. Obviously they can donate clothes. How does your donation process work?
3: Yeah, no so all the items in our wardrobe are donated. Some are new from retailers, some are kind of those things in your wardrobe that you never wore. <laughs> <laughs> We've all got them. So no please we ask for people to send high quality clothing yeah. to us and to send it to us. That's our ask. We don't really have the means to kind of zip yeah, around no. town picking it up. And that makes a massive difference to us. You can volunteer your time, you know, so that's hugely helpful as well. it's quite a structured volunteering program. It's one of those where yeah. the more yeah, which I you think probably in, helps people. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And then we do, you know, we're quite entrepreneurial as a charity. We don't have any government funding. We don't have any legacy funding. Um, so we try to raise quite a bit of our own income, and we do a lot of that through. Harnessing that sweet spot of there are too many clothes in the world, and we get a lot of lovely clothes at Smartworks, not all of which are interview appropriate. So we have regular sales, oh, uh, which a, are great oh, I fun. Know. Yeah, yeah, no, they're really amazing sales. We have once you know you know. Oh, it's one of those, eh? <laughs> a big following. So uh, yeah, have a look on the site and sign up to our mailing list. But. um and then we also do pop-up sales with brands and things like that as well, just to try and generate money. So there's good ways you can spend money on clothes, where that money comes to smartworks or on beauty things, or you can come to our sales and support us that way. Or you can you know, we are a charity, we need money. You can, you can give us donate money. Donate your cash. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. always a good uh, thing yes, to say. Exactly, exactly.
2: And we always finish our interviews with asking you for your best piece of career advice for our listeners. So it could be advice that you've been given that's really stuck with you, or just words of wisdom that you just think is useful mm. for anyone listening when they're thinking about their career in the future? I
3: think just to know that however brilliant things are or however terrible things are, you know, it's all just a moment and that there are good times and bad times for everybody. Just not to be too hard on yourself and keep going. There are times when everyone, I think, has thought, I'm not sure I can keep doing this, or times this is amazing, it's going to be like this forever, and actually we just need to, to keep going. I think so many women in particular, actually, just lose ownership a little bit of their own mm. careers through things that happen in their lives. And Do you know what um, someone said
2: to me about, not about my career, but about bringing up a kid, was everything is just a phase? Yes. And exactly. I did find that quite useful. Yeah. <laughs> like, And actually, I think you can apply that to work as well, oh, of going, definitely. of course, it's never going to be brilliant all the time. Yeah. But I think it's particularly helpful when you're having a tough moment. Mm. Like this morning when I was trying to persuade my toddler to go to nursery, <laughs> and it, which he has always loved until the last three days, where for some reason he's now decided he's taken against it. Just being like, Okay, this is the latest phase and at some point this phase will stop. Don't give up. And there have definitely been times I think, particularly I think since I've had my little boy Max where I've thought, Oh God, like this is really hard. This is and it would be easy to think, I can't do this now, I can't make this work. Yeah. But like you say, just going it is It is okay. You will exactly. get through. it, It's just a moment. Exactly. Once my youngest got to three, I just felt like a
3: huge bit of my brain,
2: oh, was okay. suddenly
3: available again. I've got, I've got three months <laughs> yes. until that
2: happens. Seriously, it's like a thing that's exciting. <laughs> and,
3: uh, and you're there, and I'm back. I'm like, oh, I'm back. I'm still here. Okay. And I was so glad at the moment that I just kept going. Yeah. Because then I could keep going, and and now I love it. My children are older, and they can see me working. They love they love what I do and they're excited about it too and that's just inspiring for everybody
2: So Kate, thank you so much for joining us today Talking to you has really reminded me, A, how much I love the world of, kind of charities and impact uh, It does remind me a bit of my days when I used to spend a lot more time with charities mm. and why I enjoyed that role so much because it's so nice to hear someone who clearly cares so much about what they do but also has a lot of common sense and practical advice to share with our listeners, so thank you so much for joining us It's a pleasure So I hope you enjoyed that conversation that I had with Kate. It was a real pleasure to talk to her. You're now going to hear my conversation with Ethne O'Leary, who is the president of Investment Bank Stifle. So delighted to welcome Ethne onto the podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Very pleased to be here. And what I thought we would do, I know lots of our listeners will just be intrigued to learn a bit more about what your week looks like. Most of us have not been CEOs of investment banks looking after billions of pounds every week. And certainly if you start to list all of the things that you're accountable for, it starts to sound scary very quickly. So give us a bit of an insight into what does an average week of a CEO entail?
4: I suppose people won't be surprised necessarily to hear this, but there isn't really an average week, unfortunately, (laughs) because what you set out to do of a Monday morning probably holds together until about 11 o'clock on that Monday, and then it becomes slightly overwhelmed by the things that come up, which is not to say you go into every week without a plan, because that's not true. You do have a plan, it's just that you don't get through all of it or most of it, in an average week. Yeah. So it's a question of triage, of figuring out what needs to be done, what is explosive in nature, and what needs attention more particularly directly. It doesn't fit a particular pattern, I wouldn't say.
2: And do you but find that... Do you, have you got used to that over time? Or is that quite frustrating? Are you quite a planned person? Or have you had to learn to live with the kind of spontaneity that comes with a CEO role? It'd be
4: lying to say I don't find it frustrating because it can be absolutely infuriating occasionally. But I think one of the things that isn't helpful to most careers and to most senior positions is rigid thinking. And if you are rigid in how you approach it, it tends, I think, on balance to work against you because most problems are people-based. I mean, some of them aren't, but a lot of them are. And being very rigid about how you approach that doesn't work necessarily.
2: I think I realised probably six, seven years ago when I started to lead bigger teams, I always had this idea in my mind that, oh, once I got my team all sorted, everything would just start flowing perfectly and there was going to be this perfect moment where all the people stuff would be in place. And then I realised I was fighting a losing battle. There's never that point of steady state.
4: There, there, There never is. I mean, one of the things that is frustrating about it is that, you get blown off course and coming back to finish off things so writing down at the end of a meeting the action points that need to be executed post that meeting is important Mm -hmm. and it's easy to miss it when you're being blown off course so the frustrating thing is coming back to have that same conversation again because what you decided the last time hasn't been Mm. executed so One of the changes that I've tried to make in how we're doing things now is to capture not the discussion necessarily in the meeting, but what needs to be done after it needs to be focused Mm. on.
2: There's um, a really good article, actually, I read, that actually came out of Silicon Valley, which was around jobs to be done, and this idea of being very clear on after any meeting or any interaction that you're having, especially if you've got multiple projects, very busy weeks, lots of different accountabilities... Mm -hmm just make sure no-one is left in any doubt what are their jobs to be done. And I find that phrase has been quite useful for me. Yep. I'm quite reflexive, so I get quite lost in just thinking and reflecting and then thinking, OK, so what are the jobs that actually have to be done, even if it's just this week or this hour or this side of Christmas?
4: I think that's important. That's a change that we've tried to make. Whilst So that's the balancing, the counterbalancing factor for being able to be flexible about the thinking is that there is a bit of follow-up on the... Yeah.
2: So it's See, almost that flexibility within a, a framework, okay. essentially. Yeah. And so every week's different and pretty unpredictable from what you've just said. What days do you love the, the most? What things give you the most energy, the most enjoyment...
4: I suppose I'd say, like most people, coming to Friday occasionally can be a bit of a relief. <laughs> yes. There's no getting away from that. I wouldn't lie about it. Actually, coming in on Monday is also good because you've got a plan and you still are in the naivety of thinking that you're going to get something <laughs> going to be done and it's going to be different. And the belief that it's going to be different is quite important because it's hard to keep going if you never think you're going to get through it. And you will get through it. But there are, you know, it's human nature. There are times when you are... Um, most people are defeated occasionally by just the length of time and the complexity and things aren't simple no matter what anybody tries to write down in a management book it's mm-hmm. never
2: really quite as straightforward as it looks and you talked about getting to friday do you manage to switch off over a weekend yeah do i'm you? pretty ruthless about it actually to be honest as robert,
4: robert probably knows um i don't like i don't like working over weekends unless it's absolutely necessary um, because one of the things that is about the ceo role that's different is you have to make decisions. And making decisions is intellectually and physically tiring. Mm -hmm. You have certain capacity to make decisions over an average day and it can be as useless as what you're going to have for lunch. Yeah, yeah. It's still a decision. It still winds down your capacity to make more decisions. So if you don't refresh that by doing other things over the weekend that are not related to work, then
2: you are less effective. Yeah, that's interesting. That idea of almost decision fatigue. It I remember um, I used to work for Justin King over at Sainsbury's, and you know every moment of his day was pretty much planned within an inch of its life. And when he went on holidays, he didn't want them planned at all. He had them really full of almost. I'm just going to get up, be spontaneous. I don't need to be anywhere at any one moment in time. And I think that was his equivalent of a weekend was essentially going. I do need those times that don't feel like the week, because that's how I re-energise and resilient again on a Monday.
4: I completely relate to that. I think that's exactly... People will approach it differently, but I think it is worth remembering. If you're trying to do the job of the CEO, you are listening to various points of view. You're trying to weigh up decisions. Most of them aren't straightforward. Yeah. Um So it does require an evaluation and the use of judgment about which direction to go so if you're doing that all day long making decisions at the weekend is a pain in the yes neck.
2: <laughs> and so if people were thinking about becoming a ceo in the future if that's somebody's ambition what qualities do you think you need to enjoy and thrive in a ceo role And I wonder whether they are specific to industry or whether actually that job, almost regardless of maybe the company that you're running, there are perhaps some consistent qualities?
4: The qualities range, I think. Ability to communicate, ability to listen. And I think listening, to my mind, is more important than the communication end of it. Mm. But that element of being able to stand back and let people have their say because you should, if Mm -hmm. the team is good enough to be working in the organization and for you, then their views are worthwhile. You may not agree with them and you may find them irritating occasionally, but they are worthwhile. So you should listen to them. The ability to take a step back and give other people responsibility and credit, Mm -hmm. I think is important. You can have a bit of debate about whether that's a consistent feature across genders, whether that is possible or likely or common, Mm -hmm. let's say. I think it's important to give other people credit when they deserve it. In fact, it's more important.
2: Yeah, I think there probably could be a bit more appreciation in organisations generally. And just going back to that point on listening, because I think people will find that really interesting to explore a little bit more. And you wrote a really lovely article, which we'll link to in the resources, about the value of listening. And there's a lovely quote in there where you say, no one has a monopoly on wisdom. So as a CEO, how do you go about creating the space to listen? Because you described what it feels like to be a CEO and it feels, you know, almost from what you've already said It's there's lots of decisions, lots of people probably want your time. Listening could easily be bottom of your to-do list. So how, how do, given you, you obviously do think it's important, how do you prioritise it?
4: So going back to the, the start of the question, if nobody has a monopoly in wisdom, and I think if you've got 100 people in a room, they'd all agree, broadly speaking, though that's a sensible yeah. thing to say, would those 100 people then go back to their office and assume they have the right approach to each problem that they are dealing with? Mm-hmm. They probably do. So yeah. if you take the first piece and marry it with the second piece, it doesn't quite work. Yeah. So if it doesn't work, then you have to assume that the person who... Um, you are employing that does legal knows more about the law than you do. The person you're employed to do human resources knows more about employment law than you do. Yeah. The person who's giving you compliance advice knows more about compliance than you do. So you have to work on the basis. The person who's trading for you knows more about trading than you do. So you have to assume that there is some basic core competence that those people are bringing to the table. Yeah. So if you don't listen to what they have to say then why are they there? Yeah, yeah. At the same time, you take that on to the next step, and most of those questions that come up in relation to employment situations, legal situations, they're about judgment. So everybody comes to it with a view based on their discipline of what should happen next. Occasionally, that will be through a very narrow prism of the discipline that they come with. And that won't be right. So occasionally you have to take in and evaluate the advice that you're being given and make a judgment that may be different.
2: And do you think people respond better? You might still be doing something that they don't agree with, but if they felt listened to in the first place, has that been your experience? It
4: depends on the individual. Okay. There <laughs> are... yeah, that's probably a very honest answer. It really does. There are people who think because they've said something that you should... Absolutely, take their advice and implement it on the spot. You can't get away from the fact that you will invite people into the conversation who then feel an ownership of it that they don't deserve to have. So, going on to the qualities of a CEO, you Mm -hmm. do have to be prepared to make unpopular judgments and own it and in a pretty singular manner.
2: So, that was Ethne O'Leary talking really about day in the life, week in the life just generally the life of being a CEO. And I really appreciated, I think, her candor and honesty, giving us a kind of a window into her world. And I'm reassured to hear that she has the weekends off and that she's actually really ruthless about that. It gives me kind of hope that to be a CEO and to get more women as CEOs, that people don't need to subscribe to this idea of 24-7 working.
1: Planning for your next trip? For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: And last but very much not least, you're now going to hear my conversation with Dame Silla Snowball. So Silla, thank you so much for joining us today on the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm delighted to have you here. It's great to be here, thanks for asking me. I think the reason we wanted to talk to you today was particularly to dive into the world of being a CEO. Yeah, What that looks like, feels like, kind of what that journey was for you. And as you were growing up kind of in your career, was that always an aspiration that you had or was it something that became a reality as you got a bit more experience or from like day one where you're like, no, I want to aim for the CEO role? No, it was
5: definitely something that grew on me as I progressed through my career. And I very much just subscribe to that principle that uh, if you do your day job and your current job really well the next job will look after itself so that's how my career developed with a a real focus and joy really of of doing the day job as well as i possibly could and then opportunities opened up but if you run an ad agency you get to work with lots of different ceos so I was lucky in that I saw lots of different CEOs in other industries in action on the way up. So I could observe, learn, train on the day job as I climbed up through the ranks.
2: That's interesting. Just going back to that point around doing your day job really well and letting the next move look after itself. I think often women get advice that just doing the day job really well isn't enough. And it goes back to that, people don't like the phrase of like personal brand or gravitas or shouting about the work that you do yeah was that not your experience did you find that actually just being brilliant at the day job was enough and do you think that's because you had the right people around you who spotted how brilliant you were
5: no I I I was I've always been quite pushy with it so okay um I have a lot of personal ambitions, so it wasn't a passive thing, just being good at the day job. These are big jobs. Yeah. And so being good at the day job isn't unambitious. Um, At various points along the way, I have felt ready for a bigger role and uh, on a couple of occasions have asked for a bigger role and... With mixed success, sometimes I was ready, sometimes I wasn't. But I think don't take the, the ambition to do your day job really well as, as an unambitious mm. objective. I think there's a lot to do in these jobs and there's a lot of scope in these big jobs and a lot of reward and satisfaction in them one other aspect of my career is that I was lucky enough to work in in a very good agency so I had really good bosses on the way up and again I think if you learn from good people and the succession planning is robust you take over at a point where you know what the job entails you've seen someone close to you do that job well and there's a smooth transition into the role. So I think a combination of being content in my role, being ambitious to do it well, picking the company I work for pretty well. Yeah, yeah. And my bosses pretty well has been a bit of a virtuous circle for me and I recognise my luck in that because the most important decision we'll all make in our work careers is choosing the company we work with and for and the people we work with and for, and I lucked in with all mine.
2: And do you, when you were first approached about the job or when it became close to being a reality where you could see, oh, I think I might end up being a CEO here, or that feels like it's realistic, what excited you the most and what scared you the most?
5: It's hard to remember now. I was made managing director of the agency on the 1st of January in the year 2000, and if you remember back to that period, everyone was worried about the millennium bug and what would happen, so I was very... (laughs) Absorbed with the practicalities of all those. Our things. computer's going to work tomorrow. Yeah, all those things that never happen. But I vividly remember the sort of Christmas break before that. Thinking, <laughs> oh my god, I'm going to be on on the first of January. But I think you just get on with it. You have a plan, a team, and it's enormously exciting. So thinking back to it, I think I just, as with everything, grasped it, dived in, and relied a lot on the team above and around me to help me make a go of it and a success of it
2: and how did you cope with the inevitable uh, bumps in the road the tough times because you know advertising is not an easy industry and there will have been moments where things have gone wrong in your control out of your control how do you respond in those moments where you do think this is either the perfect storm or, th- or everything seems to be going the wrong direction And I do think sometimes the more senior you become, the lonelier that can feel. You know, people talk about it being lonelier at the top. So what did you do in those moments where things didn't go to plan?
5: Yeah, I think I've learned a lot over the years. And all of this dealing with adversity improves over as you get older and more experienced because you recognize that actually adversity is part of managing adversity is part of doing the job and fixing problems is part of the leadership role. In the early stages, I thought the problems were a signal that I wasn't doing the job properly and took it all personally, but rapidly learned that you have to love fixing problems, that problems are inevitable, that setbacks are learning experiences and you have to move on. Some of them are pretty horrible and in the world of advertising, sometimes you win, sometimes you don't win, you win contracts, you lose contracts. It's a bit like sport, you have to learn from your losses and play better next time. So... I think in answer to your question, initially, you take the knocks badly in an immature way. They linger, (laughs) you dwell on them, you take them personally. But over time, you learn to accept that leaders make mistakes, that you learn from them that problems are an inevitable part of the job. And often they take you to something better. So I'm a great believer in silver linings. There are tough periods you have to go through in running a business but you learn a lot in addressing them and come out stronger and I think it was Disraeli that said that there's no education like adversity and (laughs) um, although it, it feels anything but an education at the time ultimately you get through it
2: Did you proactively seek out mentors during your career? Is that something you still think about? Has it been a more kind of natural, organic process? And I think women often think more, I think, about maybe you have mentors who advise you, but do you also have sponsors who are advocating for you? This idea of it being really binary, of someone's either a mentor or a sponsor, I'm not sure that's kind of always the case. Because I feel like with you, you've kind of done both of those things for me but over quite a long period of time.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think the whole mentoring and sponsoring thing is very important Mm -hmm. for our development. I've been lucky enough to have both unofficial mentors, formal mentors, people who would give me advice, tell me when I was doing things wrong, and have my back. And ultimately, I think a mentor has knowledge, And a sponsor has power to influence your Mm. career. And so having a bit of both is really important. But the numbers suggest that we haven't got nearly enough sponsoring going on, particularly Mm. of women. And the CMI have just done some really interesting research that says only 3% of female managers are sponsored whereas Ooh, so low. 19% are mentored, which are both very low numbers. Talking to their management base, they found that about 80% of companies in their survey had formal mentoring programs in place, but only 20% of companies had formal sponsoring mechanisms in place. So there's a big gap there. Mentoring, I think... Can spread far and wide. You can seek knowledge and advice from people who have nothing to do with your industry and your career. And I get asked a lot by (laughs) almost complete strangers saying, Will you be my mentor? And I try and do it properly, but do it as much as I possibly can. And I mentor final year students from my university, people in the marketing industry, colleagues along the way who want some help. But ultimately, the sponsoring will address some of the leadership issues we've got for women in in management. You need somebody who's got your back and who's really got their hand on your back, pushing you forward within an organisation. And that can be a man or a woman. And I've been lucky enough to have bosses who have had my back and clients who've had my back, actually, and who've pushed me forward and told me to stop being ridiculous and get over it and laughing in my face <laughs> uh, which is uh, helpful but I think sponsoring will accelerate women in leadership and we need to make sure that companies and individuals have plans in place to make that happen. And it's our duty, really, as senior female leaders, to make sure we are sponsoring and accelerating Mm. women through the system because, again, the gender pay gap numbers show very, very clearly that we haven't got enough female leaders.
2: So you mentioned about the gender pay gap. So in the FTSE, we still only have six female CEOs. You know, nationally we have a gender pay gap that sits at around kind of 17%, slight it's lowering slightly. Yeah. In most industries, it's relatively flat. And it's interesting, like a couple of years ago, I think when the gender pay gap reporting started for companies mm. with more than 250 people, I thought that might quite dramatically transform the gap that you would see in some industries and some companies. And now I don't think it has. In some instances, I think probably people who started from a good base, you know, have mm. maybe got even better. But I guess that's partly because these things, you can't shift them overnight, though I do worry sometimes it gets used as excuses. Mm. But what's your view at the moment, given, you know, your chairing of the Women Business Council and, you know, your knowledge of things like gender pay gap? What do you think is still holding us back from making more progress quicker?
5: Yeah, and I think that's the million-dollar question, yeah. literally. <laughs> I yeah, mean, that's it's not will, an easy question, is so. it? will release a lot of economic growth if we get yeah. this right. I mean, it was introduced a couple of years ago. We supported it being introduced wholeheartedly yeah. because it was designed to redress the gender pay gap in a generation. Yeah, And the inner generation bit is significant because these things can't be overturned Overnight. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a brilliant start point. It got fantastic coverage in the media. It made every large company think about where the problem lay in their business. And for three quarters of companies, there is an imbalance and there is a gender pay gap because there aren't enough senior women in the top quarter of pay in their organization. So the issue has been confused with equal pay, and there have been some high-profile yes, yeah. examples. Equal pay has been the law since 1970. Yeah. So equal pay is a given that a man and a woman doing the same job should be paid same. the same. But the gender pay gap is an average of the staff in an organisation seeing where the money is. And to address it, we need to get more women into leadership roles. and. Um, So what I think has been helpful, and there are some shining examples of companies like Mars and Diageo and Mm. several others, but for the vast majority of companies, it provides a start point, it enables brilliant target setting that says, here's where we are, it's not where we want to be, but we have to improve it year on year. And I think it will drive change, and that is welcome and necessary change. But in some industries, it is overturning the legacy of that entire industry as well as company, yeah. and will take time.
2: And a few people sort of asked me this when they sort of knew that, that we were chatting. I'm really unsure what, how to kind of address it because I was trying to think: would I ask the same question if I was interviewing a man? Which I think is a Go good. Ahead. It's, a good, Go it's ahead. a good. It's a good question to ask yourself, though. Yeah. But people um, who research you, you know, you've had three children who are now a little bit older. I think maybe left home or come home a bit. Yeah. But um, you know, you combined being a CEO with having a family and with outside interests in terms of boards that you were chairing way before you've got to the point now where you're doing it full time. And that point about how did you integrate everything together? And I did read something really interesting the other day to say, why do men never get asked that question? So. I think it's a really interesting question to ask because I think people do find it helpful to hear those insights. But I think we've just got to make sure that we ask men the question as well rather than not ask the women. So I'm still going to ask it.
5: Well, happy, healthy children are the major ingredient in being able to make that work. And I've been lucky enough to have three happy, healthy children and work for a company that believes that family are critical and certainly they're definitely the most important thing to me in the world and always have been so making it work relies on all the things you know about having good support at home and at work a backup system that enables you to get through the tough patches and putting them first I think enables you to keep things in priority and Keep your priorities right. So, funnily enough, I just before I left IMV, I had a meeting with someone who was out on maternity leave who just had her third child, and she brought all three children into the office. <laughs> it was total, That's brave. It was total chaos, and I did gaze at her thinking, how on earth do you do that? And as she left, I thought, gosh, I did I that. I did but do that, God yeah. knows how. God <laughs> knows how. I think we... Uh, managed to get through it and I'm very proud that they survived it.
2: So Uh, so last two questions that we always ask people. The first one is, is there a person who has particularly inspired you throughout your career, whether it's someone that you know and have worked with or just someone who you've always kind of looked up to or felt inspired by?
5: I've, Worked for great bosses in AMV. The founders were wonderful. Abbott Mead and Vickers, Michael Bulk, and Andrew Robertson, who were my two bosses, were inspiring all the time because of a combination of being brilliant at their jobs and being endlessly optimistic about everything and that's I a nice way to be described endlessly optimistic that optimism i think is so important in leaders but also they put up with me for which i'm midterm
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> i suspect it wasn't that bad and, well no it's quite a challenge for them but they did
0: so <laughs> we're
2: very grateful to them and then if you were to pass on your best piece of career advice to everybody listening if you had to choose one either your own advice or advice that you've been given that has really kind of struck a chord with you, what would it be?
5: I think it's build a great team, whether or not you're part of that team or you're leading it. I think the whole model of leadership is changing and the hierarchy, yes, there is a leader and there's someone called the CEO, but CEOs have to delegate to experts in their team and lead brilliant teams because one day CEOs will hand over to those teams so I think it's be part of a great team and focus on building a great team because it's never about the individual it's about teams
2: Mm. I think increasingly now I can't think of any work you ever do where you do it by yourself really you're always part of so many different teams and it's true, a bit like you are saying earlier, that you sort of don't necessarily miss the physical thing of being in the office because you sort of take the people with you. I was just thinking back to all the best teams that I've been part of. I still feel connected yes. to all of those people. And if anything, I'd always look for opportunities to work with them again yes. on anything because I just think, oh, that was a brilliant team to be in, to be part of. And all of your best achievements actually always come from when it's a number of you working together to get to something isn't it it's never just you now yeah
5: and I I think if you build a diverse team then you can certainly if you're leading it you can celebrate that diversity and celebrate the difference and prompt different points of views ask people what their opinions are again manage an optimistic way forward out of that diversity but being a good team player And investing in your team is something that carries you through whatever position Hmm. you're playing in the team. You're only as good as your team.
2: Well, Scylla, thank you so much for talking to us today and I'm also very grateful to your dog who has sat very quietly <laughs> and had a little nap behind us What a well-behaved I know, dog. He, she <laughs> was bounding around before we started Oh, she's coming over to she's say been hello media, now She's
5: fully media trained
2: Yeah, she has, she's <laughs> media trained to be, to be very good I'm going to take a picture with her in a moment because she's so cute But thank you so much for joining us It's been a real privilege and pleasure as always to talk to you, Scylla Likewise, my love, good luck So thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you found it inspiring, practical and useful. And whether you want to be a CEO or not, that you felt it's really realistic for us all to find a way of working that makes us happy, fulfilled and means that we can reach our potential. Thanks very much for listening. Speak to you again soon. (laughs)